You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT, Davis, California. time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And I get to say that because this is the end of April and it is beautiful outside. We can probably just copy and paste that into the next six months since it's likely to be a bright, beautiful, sunny day for about April, May, June, July, August, September, and the first part of October here in the Sacramento Valley. The weather is, as of the official day when this is going to be airing, is going to be going up to a high of 84 degrees on Thursday, April 30th. Have I got that right? Yes, Thursday, right. April 30th. Yes. It's going to be partly cloudy Thursday night with a low of 52 degrees. High Friday, sunny, 81 degrees. Friday night, 52 degrees. A little cooling trend finally. Saturday is going to be 77 and mostly sunny. Saturday night, partly cloudy and 52 degrees. Sunday, Cooling to 76, Sunday night dropping down to, uh uh-oh, 49 degrees. Don't worry about it, folks. Monday, sunny with a high near 80. Monday night, cooling to about 48. uh, Tuesday, 82. Tuesday night, 52. You get the point. And then Wednesday, warming back up a little bit into the mid-80s. So basically, going to be low 80s, upper 70s for the next few days with the nights just barely dropping below 50 degrees. I actually had someone ask, you can imagine what the question was. Is it time to plant peppers and eggplants? Just barely. Just about. Fine with tomatoes. And you're okay with peppers and eggplant. And tens of thousands of them have already gone in the ground. I can tell you that. We've never seen anything like this before in the nursery business. The unbelievable demand and pandemonium with respect to planting vegetables this season. Um, So, yeah, we're where we almost need to be. Go ahead. Don't worry about it. How's that? That's great. And um, the only issue we're all running into, as I've alluded to in the last couple of shows, some real shortages of material out there. Um, I'll do an order. I'll order 60, 80 flats. I'll get in 50 of them. And mm-hmm. I don't know for sure what's going to come in. And this is happening at our other you know, other local areas, that other local businesses that sell plant materials. I was just informed by our bag goods supplier that they're simply going to discontinue bagging the smaller bag good items for the next couple of weeks. Because the bigger bag good items are such high volume and so much demand, they're going to focus on those at the moment. This is an unprecedented level of consumer demand for vegetable gardening, plants, and supplies. And while we realize that like many other things that we've all been dealing with for the last few weeks, it'll be inconvenient. It will peak out. Things will be available. You might want to show a little flexibility in terms of the exact variety of tomato that goes in the ground, but there's going to be some interesting spot shortages over the next, I would say, two to three weeks. Good news is we can keep planting vegetables here right on through May into June, even depending on what it is you're planting. So if you are at home and haven't been gardening for a little while and you're doing this, 
you might want to go out and check your sprinkler system and make sure that all of those sprinklers are really actually connected to the drip lines that they're supposed to be on. Um, so are that you don't Are we feeding from experience here? <laughs> yes, unfortunately, I killed a lovely little plant that I, I got to, I was going to wait, raise squash this year. I got a tomato. That sprinkler works on the other side of the bench. The, the, it had been disconnected. I hadn't noticed. Yeah, so we, check things. we were cool. We had rain. It was a very dry winter. 2019-20 had been dry. We're only about half to two-thirds of average rainfall. But we had those nice little rainstorms into April, which kind of put off the reckoning with the sprinkler systems. We had enough rain that, that we weren't really rushing out there. And now people are, I'm doing the same thing, going through all the drip lines right now, finding, I don't know where they go during the winter, but finding the emitters that, uh, or the holes where the emitters were that disappeared, uh, they were there in November, but they're not there now. And finding it's real simple in my case. You just turn on the valve and look for the fountains. You go plug the fountain with whatever is supposed to have been there. So, uh, and of course, the usual sprinkler repairs that occur when I get the field mode as well. Good time to flush the lines. And this is important for those of you with drip lines, drip irrigation systems, who might be on hard well water, is that there's a lot of salts in that water. And during the two, three months when you weren't using your system, they that salt kind of precipitated out inside the tube and it's there you turn on the system and it flushes in and it plugs the emitters if you don't flush it out of the system so one of the most important things you do at the beginning of the season go to the very end of the line take off the end of the line uncap it or whatever turn the thing on let it run for five or ten minutes to flush all that crud out that has built up during the winter time keep it from let it go out the end of the system rather than attempt to go out through the emitter holes, which you will then plug if you unfortunately don't do this. You probably didn't do that, did you? Well, no. And what I'm dealing with is uh, planters, you know, the barrels and tubs and things, and mm -hmm. all the lines are behind them. They're underneath, they're stuck in, you know, there's vegetation over all of them, so. Well, suggestion yeah. there. Something that I have learned kind of the hard way, and this is just for those of you that might be putting in a drip system now, is leave the very end of the line in an accessible place. So that at the very start of the season like this, you can go down there, put a stake or something where you know where it is. I have a threaded cap on the end of the line so I can just unscrew it. But I mean, there's other ways to deal with that. And just give it a few minutes flush at the beginning of the season. It'll solve you some problems with plugging, especially if you're on hard well water or places with high salt content in the water. And okay. if you've never done this before, I'm sure there are videos online to teach you how to do it. Yep. Because there's a lot of stuff that people are doing at home that they never used to do. <laughs> and their landscapers are still functioning out there as well, so they can come around and give you a hand. Uh, let's do one of those public service announcements. Uh, you, you have one pulled up? Uh, yes, I, I do. And that is about our radio show that is catered. Now, KDRT, the station physically has been closed for many weeks weeks and very few shows are being done now slowly those of us who are able to are, are creating new content such as Dan and I are doing today but the only show that's actually being broadcast live from the studio is Autumn LaBey Renault who's the director over there does a COVID-19 community report and she does this every Tuesday from 12 to 12 30 and Friday from 12 to 12.30, and then it's rebroadcast Tuesday and Friday at 5. I recommend it to you. She's been doing a very good job of getting local information that, you know, you might have questions about and not know. They, she's also doing a blog there, 
excuse me. So you can go to kdrt.org and find the blog, or you can simply tune into the radio station on Tuesdays at noon or Fridays at noon. Okay, and the UC Davis Arboretum will be our public service announcement for a local resource. We always like to mention those. UCD Arboretum encompasses 100 acres of gardens for active recreation, teaching, research, and peaceful contemplation. And here's some good news. It's open all the time. We just request, or they request, I should say, that you maintain social distancing as you walk the many, many, many miles of paths around the Arboretum. They offer guided tours, ordinarily, and educational programs and performance spaces and exhibits for water-wise gardening. Well, they also have, and this is me ad-libbing here, several gardens that are named that focus on particular themes and uh, there's very good signage and in fact there are various apps you can use look online to read about those gardens as you visit them uc davis arboretum is available 24 hours a day every day of the year for more information you can call 530-752-4800 or visit arboretum.ucdavis.edu should mention lots of people are going over there to get exercise, walking around, the paths are wide, plenty of space, and it's a really lovely place to be in the months of April and May, any year, particularly this year. And since we don't know if people are actually gonna be in the office there or not, if you want more information, visit arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Okay, so uh, we had a couple questions that came our way and an interesting picture that got sent to me. Let's start with the question. So that would be on, uh, uh, Lois and I are doing this remotely from our homes or offices. And so hopefully she and I are looking at the same pieces of paper. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at brown spots on the lawn, Don. Yep. What are you looking at? Uh, yeah, I want to start with brown spots on the lawn, which are beginning to show up primarily from drought. Um, so we'll talk more about those as we get into the summer. But what it really is there is lawns were looking great and now we've hit 90 degrees and the rain has gone away and people have turned on their sprinklers and may not be doing it adequately. That was pretty much all I wanted to focus on for that today. We get other issues on lawns and of course many people have simply done away with their lawns entirely, but mostly what I'm seeing from the pictures that people are bringing in is insufficient or inadequate coverage by the sprinkler heads uh, which might need to be checked out. So just like with the drip systems we were talking about before, when you first turn on your lawn sprinklers or sprinklers that cover your ground cover areas, perennial borders, shrubs, trees, check and make sure they're all working properly. Uh, it's not uncommon for things, debris and stuff to get in there and plug them up during the period when they're not in use. So flush them out, check them out and make sure they're covering. And then I would suggest, if you haven't done this before, and you still have a lawn area, measure your output. Uh, take some tuna cans or coffee, uh, coffee cups that are straight-sided cylinders or actual rain gauges or cake pans, any straight cylinder. Set them out in various places, especially if there's a part of the lawn that always looks a little more dull or a little thinner or not as healthy and vigorous, and make sure that your coverage is even, that your sprinkler heads are covering adequately and evenly. And I want to see you put on, anytime you water, either a lawn or a perennial border or a ground cover area, an inch of water. And sprinklers vary considerably as to how long it takes them to put out an inch of water. Old-fashioned pop-up little brass heads may do it in 20 minutes, although you'll probably get runoff from many soils in the area in that time. Uh, newer, newfangled, uh, more efficient water heads, sprinkling heads may take 45 minutes to put out an inch of water, which is great because you know it'll soak in better, but you need to know how long that takes. And the start of the season is a very good time to figure out how long it'll take you to apply an inch of water 
and uh, whether you have adequate distribution and coverage with your sprinkler heads. Again, if this isn't something you're comfortable with, you might want to go ahead and call some local gardening service or landscape service who's still out there working, able to maintain correct social distancing as they do so. They're still working and they're still, you know, still trying to make a living. So it might be something you can get some help with in the garden. Other causes of brown spots, well, it could be fungus or insects. Yes. That's not so common here, but... They happen. They're much less common. They're more common as we get into the summer. So I like to mention them now, something to be aware of and watch for. Listeners back east or in the Midwest are probably quite familiar with the problems of grubs in their lawn and fungus problems. Um, and those are things that generally show up here in June and probably in those climates in later June and into July. Uh, there's a variety of things we can talk about that, that cause those kinds of spots on the lawn, but it's a little early for them to be showing up. Dog spots, as we call them, that's happening year-round. If you have a dog, pees on the lawn, burns the lawn, that's something to be aware of. Uh, some more unusual things that I've actually consulted about. I was reminded of this one recently by the contractor herself who came in and we chatted about this old story. She'd been painting, she was a painting contractor, for an older customer during very hot weather. And they happened to take their tarp and spread it out on the lawn for a period of time while they were working inside in very hot weather and direct sun. And about two hours later, they went and they picked up the tarp and they went away. And the lady called irate. I mean, absolutely irate that they had, quote, killed the lawn, end quote, and demanding that they replace it with brand new sod. And so they called me in a minor panic and said, what can you possibly do about this? Did we really kill the lawn? So I drove over there because I knew this elderly customer as well. And um, I went out there and the tarp lying on an area about six foot square had in fact scorched the top half inch or so of each blade of grass to the point that it looked like that whole area to her view with her you know, limited vision from a distance had been killed. It looked like it was outright killed. It was burned. So I was able to pull up some sprigs of grass showing the whole plant, carry them over to her and show her that it was just about a half inch of each leaf blade that had been damaged and that the growing point, this was the key thing, the growing point of the plant was still intact down there at the base and said, how about if you just give this a week or two, let the gardener mow the lawn once or twice in that time and I'll bet you right now it'll come back just fine. She said, well, all right, but I'm going to make them fix it if that doesn't work. Happy to report, we both laughed about it a great deal later, it came back just fine. But just that short interval in 9,500 degree weather with a tarp on the lawn caused a burn that was cosmetic, but significant enough that the, the customer was that concerned about it. And anything you said on the lawn can do that, isn't it? I mean, like Frisbees and toys and... Yeah, it was Dan, Dan Pratt, who had a radio show in Sacramento, told me the story of having to go out on a consultation one time, could not figure out what was causing the strange little circular brown spots on the lawn. They would just appear miraculously overnight, you know, like strange little alien landing spots. And then there'd be another one and there'd be another one. And finally, he, he, he walked around and saw the Frisbee sitting where the kids had left it that time about to create the spot for the next day. So you wouldn't think that that would cause that much damage, but in very hot weather, something sitting on the lawn in that manner can actually bleach out or scorch or, or essentially cause cosmetic damage or injury to the leaf blades below. I mentioned this for the benefit of a couple of our listeners who are commercial gardeners. Just one of those things you wouldn't think to look for unless uh, you'd had this experience before. 
What about fertilizer? Can't that make burns or does that come out different? Well, yeah, it sure can. I mean, if you, if you fling out fertilizer, particularly conventional, not organic ones, but old fashioned conventional types, you fling them around and you're not real careful about your distribution, you can get a scorched area where you over fertilize. I mean, it's, it's just much, much like when the dog pees on the lawn, it burns that little area. I can usually recognize this from two patterns. One is that when you do it by hand, when you're throwing fertilizer out, it sort of swipes out in a crescent shape. And if you concentrate too much, it burns in a crescent shape. If you use a spreader, a drop spreader, and you have, let's say, speaking from experience being the teenager in this instance, let's say you have your teenage son feed the lawn with a drop spreader, and that teenage son, again, me, isn't being real careful about how he lines up the spreader as he goes, you could really nicely tiger stripe your lawn. Because you're inadvertently <laughs> overdosing parts where it overlaps, or even better is where you aren't lining up right and you have gaps where it wasn't fertilized. Either way, it doesn't lead to a very attractive appearance and uh, may do some damage to your long-term prospects as a plantsman. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're going to say you would have been a better plantsman if you hadn't done that as a teenager? That's correct. <laughs> hey, Doc. Uh, it is the end of April, yes. and we haven't done the plants on your calendar yet. And okay. I love to go through and do this. Can we do this even though some of yeah. them are gone? No, yeah, they're probably still okay. there. Go ahead. Yep. I'll see them, and then you say what they are. Okay. Circus hybrid. No, Sirius hybrid. Circus, C-E-R-C-I-S. You can pronounce it however you like, because the Romans would never have pronounced the word C-E-R-C-I-S, Circus. I took Latin. I only took two years of it, but one thing I remember from it is that they didn't have a soft C. They didn't say Julius Caesar. They said Julius Kaiser. And so we would be saying, if we were Romans, referring to redbud trees, Circus. Nobody says that. So I always <laughs> learned it as and say it as Circus. And it is true they've mostly finished blooming now. They bloom early in the month of April. Uh, there's a really lovely one that I hope will get more attention as more people start thinking about somewhat lower water trees. And that's the Merlot variety, just like the wine, Merlot, M-E-R-L-O-T, of Oklahoma redbud. It's got that thicker, waxier leaf that the Oklahoma redbud has. And uh, because of that thicker, waxier leaf, it can take heat better. It does better here in the valley than some of the eastern red buds do. And it's a tree, and it's a burgundy foliaged version of the Oklahoma red bud. So it's kind of an alternative to the red leaf plum that's been so used to the point of almost being overused. So some of you might be looking for a small tree with that really cool red bud leaf. Only this one has that, as I say, burgundy colored foliage, as well as the usual magenta flowers early in the month of April here, perhaps later in colder climates. Well, that's all really nice. However, I put on my glasses and what it actually is, is C-E-R-E-U-S. There he is. That's a cactus. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it didn't look like a red bud. Oh, okay. Cactus. Yes, cactus are very, <laughs> cactus are very cool, too. <laughs> okay. Um, P-A-E-O-N-I-A. -A. I'll bet you can say that one if you try. Peonia. Oh, you just smell, misspelled peony. I gave you the botanical spelling of peony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the botanical name of peony is peonia. Peonia. And they're actually just about to bloom right now. We don't see many of them here in the valley. People often aren't even aware you can grow them here. Uh, of course, people in colder climates know peonies. I don't know when they bloom there, but here they bloom in 
uh, late April to the 1st of May, uh, right around when the roses start to bloom. Peonies will be blooming here. And uh, they do grow here. They get enough winter chilling. It's important if you're planting one to put it out in the open where it will get that winter chilling. Much as with fruit trees, peonies need some winter chilling hours in order to bloom properly. So I don't know that they do well. I certainly don't remember them from San Diego. I don't know that they do very well in, in most of Southern California or whether they get enough chilling in the San Francisco Bay Area. But in the interior areas, you can grow peonies and they're worth it. They're definitely a, a, a wonderful bloom, great cut flower, fascinating fragrance in some cases, very old fashioned flower. We're talking about the herbaceous peony, which means the kind that are leafy and that die down to the ground in the winter. Uh, but there's also the tree peonies, which are a woody plant that doesn't become a tree, but it turns into a small shrub. And they also do grow and bloom adequately here in the Sacramento Valley. Okay, we have roses, of course. And it's, you the have big, it's the big month for roses. Yeah. really into the Italian, aren't you? Yeah, roses, Italian, uh, excuse me, roses are um, um, at their absolute peak mid-April through mid-May. Uh, that's when that first big flush of spring bloom occurs here. And when people come in wanting to know about you know, minor pests and problems they might be having on their roses, that's a whole separate show. But my new rose garden with all the heirloom roses, about 45 different varieties out there is in full bloom right now, quite spectacular. And my Rosa Banksia has, uh, that's the Lady Banks rose, has yeah. finished up. It was early in April, but it was it's, beautiful while it was there. It's the first. Yeah, it's actually, there's, there's some of the species and wild roses that bloom first, and then the, the more traditional hybrid roses come along. Then we have a bunch of bulbs, so let's go with ranunculus. Yeah, ranunculus have turned into an actual bedding plant uh, rather than a, you know, one of those things that people used to plant as a bulb in the fall to bloom in the spring. And over time, as a nursery owner, I can tell you people just stopped doing that completely with ranunculus, but that didn't stop the bedding plant growers who would take them, and they found that if they plant them in the fall and give them the proper start and then put them in their greenhouses early in the spring, they'll get spectacular bloom on more compact plants in the month of March and into April. And these are great bedding plants. Generally, people are treating them now as annuals. They're just growing them, enjoying the bloom, the you know, amazing ray of, a range of colors, and then throwing them out at the end of the season. Well, okay, we're fine with that if you want to do that. But you could, at least in theory, in a garden with well-drained soil, and where you keep watering it adequately through uh, the late spring, you could get them to live and come back another year. Most people nowadays are treating ranunculus though as if they were annuals. And then we have tulips and they've come and gone. They're done, yep. And we have iris and those are interesting because some come early and some stay late and I never know which one's gonna do what. Right, we're in the peak of bearded iris bloom right now, end of April into May, uh, here in the Valley floor. Now there's some iris growers in the area. There's one well-known one up by, locally, up by Lake Berryessa, um, a Napa, Napa country iris. And they're up at an elevation sufficient that their bloom is at least a couple weeks later than here. If you're in the area, you should check them out online because they'll post updates as to where they are in terms of bloom status. You can go up there, take your checkbook, your credit card, and I guarantee you'll come back with a couple hundred dollars worth of irises because they're incredible. Um, I like irises. I'm a big fan of them for their low care. The fact that they can you can just plant them in the garden. It's best if you divide them every couple of years, but if you don't, what the heck, they'll still grow out and bloom just further and further out from where you started them. Their bloom is short. It's a intermittent, excuse me, not intermittent. It's a couple of weeks of bloom in the month of April in the case of the regular old-fashioned bearded iris. 
but there are repeat blooming irises and people who are really enthusiastic about irises know about those varieties. I have one that blooms in the fall as well as the spring. I got it from my grandfather years ago. It blooms every year in October, November, and then is again is in bloom right now. And of course, the ones that are just starting to bloom are the, all the other categories, the Louisiana irises that you put near your pond or the, uh, the flag irises that are the great big tall stately things that go at the back of the border. The one downside about irises in general, the one thing I hear most commonly is it's such a short bloom. Um, modern consumers seem to want things that bloom all the time and are not willing to put up with something that just gives a short but intense period of bloom. That's something we've certainly noticed in the, in the nursery trade. But I think they're great for the back of the border where you need that spiky foliage and the, the tall upright blooms. Uh, they're wonderful and the fragrance is amazing. Also, if you're a photographer, photographing irises is great. And they make wonderful cut flowers. Yep. So um, is clematis considered a bulb? Uh, no, it's not a bulb. It's a it's a root crown that you buy. Uh, you often buy them from bulb suppliers because the same kinds of companies sell them. Uh, they're a long. They're it's a huge group. There's lots and lots of of clematis. I have two in full bloom right now. Uh, one that's about oh, three four weeks away. I have one that finished blooming completely for over a month ago, and I have one variety that blooms in July. And that's just with a half dozen varieties. You can get clematis blooming as early as February here in the valley with the evergreen type and all the way as late as fall with some of the unique ones that are actually autumn blooming clematis. Most people, though, are thinking of the giant flowered Jackmanny hybrids, big purple flowers. They also come in red and burgundy and white. That's what I've got in full bloom right now, climbing up a Japanese maple, the white version with seven-inch blooms. I measured one the other day. It's got about 50 blooms on it right now. I mentioned it's climbing up a Japanese maple. It's up into a burgundy, or excuse me, a blood good variety of Japanese maple. Great, it's a spectacular combination. More to the point, it's a lightweight vine, so I don't really care that it's climbing up into a tree. It's not going to hurt the tree. Uh, it's, it never gets such dense foliage that it would, say, overwhelm the tree as other vines might do and sometimes have done on my property. Uh, I let it go up there. It blooms. When it's all done, I'll tug it down, cut off the parts I don't want, and just leave it be. So they're very manageable as part of an informal shrub border. They can climb into a small tree. In England, I know they plant clematis up on climbing roses, and that's quite a spectacular combination. So you can use them as an accent to the garden. What I concern, get concerned about is when someone buys a clematis because they have a fence where they want privacy. It's not that kind of density. They're not that kind of a vine. And so you should buy another vine for the privacy and then plant a clematis on that, and then you'll be happy. Well, you said it was with a Japanese maple, but don't Japanese maples need uh, shade and doesn't clematis need sun? It's, they bloom more densely if they're in full sun. Um, Japanese maples can take sun, not, not hot afternoon sun, but they can tolerate. This one gets morning sun. What the clematis always does in nature and in your garden is it scrambles up to the top of whatever it's on. And so my, this one would look really spectacular if I were looking down at it from the roof. It looks very nice from the ground, sort of infiltrating among the leaves of the, of the burgundy-colored blood-good Japanese maple with these big white flowers. And uh, it gets up and gets enough sunlight. And I have one that was in sun originally, is now in mostly shade, and still blooms adequately. They bloom best if they can climb up into full sun. That's the old rule you learn about clematis when you buy them. You plant it where the roots will be shaded and preferably mulched with, you know, with leafy debris and have fairly even moisture. They're reasonably drought okay, but not 
preferring that. They're really better if they're in a place that's sort of automatically getting watered. And then they'll scramble up on top and be up there in the sunlight. Uh, one of my nicest ones is climbing all through a big border of Nandina, you know, the heavenly bamboo, which is a perfectly fine plant, but nothing very exciting about it. But way back behind it, 20 plus years ago, I planted this purple clematis, which the foliage looks exactly like the Nandina. So it goes all the way through the, the hedge, all the way down, climbs up on top, and all of a sudden it bursts into bloom. And so it looks like the Nandina is covered with purple flowers. I highly recommend that combination, by the way, if you have a lot of Nandina. What uh, time of year would be okay to plant uh, clematis? Um, you can find them two ways. One is that, as you mentioned, you, you kind of thought they were a bulb. They do come from the bulb suppliers in the fall or spring, usually in the spring in colder climates, as a just a dormant little root crown. That's the most economical way to do it, but it's probably going to be about two years before that plant blooms. Or you buy them in bloom at garden centers starting now, uh, actually back in, in March with the very first of them, the Montana hybrids, which are the first to bloom. And they sell them in bloom in five gallon containers. And you just either enjoy the bloom in the pot, will we'll leave it on your porch, or you plant it right away. Just make sure you keep it watered and the plant will be fine. All right. Well, let's keep going with these flowers because okay. hey, April's almost over. And some of these, some of these, <laughs> no. some of these continue right on into May. I mean, these, a lot of these are basically spring flowers for us. I have bluebells. What are bluebells? Um, oh, I assume you're referring to my picture of the wood hyacinth, the uh, Scylla campanulata, now listed as uh, Hyacinthoides campanulata. Um, people in the Northwest probably know the Spanish bluebells. I think people in the UK know the same plant as a vigorously invasive blue-flowered ground-covering bulb. Um, it spreads here, but certainly not to the degree that I've read about it spreading in other places. So uh, we enjoy them as a very shade tolerant bulb that blooms in the spring for a short period and is done. And they're just finished now. They've been actually done for about a week, but they're incredibly easy to grow. I have a stand of it where my daughter snuck out once when she was probably 10 years old. She used to like to do this. She'd find a, a bag of bulbs that I had sitting around or some seed. And she'd, she and my son would sneak out and find some place they could put them in the ground to surprise me. And uh, lo and behold, I'd be walking along and see a whole bunch of beans growing under my sycamore tree or uh, <laughs> a whole bunch of sunflowers in the middle of my vegetable garden. And they were pleasant surprises, let me tell you. Those are, that's a great way to fool your, your parents. But the, uh, the, the time they found some of the wood hyacinth bulbs and went ahead and planted them out in a garden bed without, unbeknownst to me, I only planted about three of them. There's a stand there of about 25 or 30 of these wood hyacinths now that comes up every year. 25 plus year, 20 plus years later, and I get pleasure out of that. So very, very easy to grow, shade tolerant, sun tolerant, anything with the name hyacinth on it is pretty easy to grow. You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT, Davis, California. Okay, here's one that I didn't recognize. It's called Clivia. Clivia? Clivia, if you're British, Clivia. Uh, Bay Area and Southern California listeners certainly know it. And it's uh, bright orange flowers in a tubular shape on a plant with big, strappy, dark green leaves that will grow and bloom in complete shade, Ooh. which is unusual enough in its own right. 
And it only does it once a year. So it's one of those things. You get about a four or five week bloom all at once. The blooms last a long time, but then they're done. And it's drought tolerant. They multiply freely. They're incredibly pricey when you buy them, but you don't need very many of them. And they'll increase steadily. And for years and years and years, the only color out there was this kind of bright, well, I'd say dark orange. And then yellow came along. And so now you have yellow as well as orange and different shades of orange. Um, they're, you'll see them locally in Davis, in the shaded porticos as you enter Union Bank or Bank of Dixon. They have them in the complete shade areas in the landscape, and they are just a strappy leaf there most of the time. And then suddenly you get this burst of bloom out of them. Incredibly easy to grow, but we're just on the edge of where they grow in terms of winter frost tolerance. Well, under a shaded portico, they wouldn't get frosted. So that's that right. sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, if you put them out in the open, you get some damage on them here, but most people are planting them in places that are sort of naturally frost protected. Okay, well, let's talk about phlox, P-H-L-O-X. Well, that's a big group. Um, the, there's the ground cover phlox, phlox subulata, which people like to buy as part of their rock garden or alpine garden. Makes a mat and then gives you this one big burst of bloom very early in the season. They were back in March and early April. And then it's just the beginning of the season for the perennial forms of phlox that your grandmother grew that have super fragrant flowers and make sort of what we call an herbaceous perennial plant two feet, three feet tall across the back of the border. Uh, they fell out of favor for years because they were extremely prone to mildew. And so unless you were willing to spray all the time, they were just a hassle. Uh, but about 10, 15 years ago, more mildew resistant varieties came along. And those have become very popular because phlox really is one of these super fragrant, old-fashioned flowering perennials. It's very easy to grow now that we have the mildew-resistant types. I've told this story before that I had one in my car. I put it, I was gonna take it home, put it in the border, put it in my car, went over to the station to do my jazz show, which is an hour, came back, got in the car, and just about passed out <laughs> from the powerful fragrance of the phlox in bloom. I was driving home, my eyes were watering because of how potently fragrant it was in the evening. It's one of those plants. It's got a sort of a pleasant light scent in the afternoon, anytime you walk up to the flower. And then like so many things that are apparently pollinated by night flying denizens, it starts emitting its volatile organic compounds right about at sunset, at dusk, to draw the moths or whatever it is that are attracted to them for pollen. And so if you have this in your garden, like so many other evening scented things, like a honeysuckle that I have here on the property, many others, you walk by and you suddenly get that scent just about at sunset. And it's definitely a nice bonus for the pretty flowers and the light scent during the rest of the day and then this intense fragrance in the evening. Let me tell you, it's intense. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily cut it and bring it into the house, but it's a very powerfully sweet smelling flower. Another ground cover flower that is quite sweet is that sweet alyssum. And I like that scent. It's light, light honey sort of scent. Right, and you're looking at the April calendar, but I could put a picture of that on any month of the year in California. I mean, sweet alyssum is a, is a low, easy to grow annual, and it's technically annual, but it reseeds so much that most people actually think they're perennial. Uh, you pull out the old ratty looking ones after 10 or 12 weeks, and there's always a carpet of babies coming up right underneath it. And it's got a, yes, yeah, a honey, honey sweet type of scent, very attractive to bees and a nice thing to have in the garden, draws beneficial insects in a big way. So if you're looking for a plant to put in your garden that'll keep 
ladybugs and other beneficials around, uh, particularly the little parasitic wasps that like to attack aphids, a very, very useful plant to have in the garden. You only have to plant it once, by the way. Uh, oh, that means don't plant it where you don't want it forever? It'll reseed in a very friendly manner, yes. <laughs> what about Gerberus? Here's a picture of something strange. Gerberus? Like peas. Uh, say the name again. B-E-R-B-E-R-I-S. Oh, Berberus, Barberry. Well, you got in a little controversy with that one. Barberry shrubs are cool in their own way. Uh, they've become, the Japanese Barberry with the red foliage has become highly invasive back east. It's the kind of thing where any forum you're on, if someone posts a picture of a Barberry, a bunch of people from the mid-Atlantic states in particular will jump in and say, oh my God, rip that out and burn it because it's apparently quite invasive back there. Um, just for the record, it grows great here and is not invasive. And there, it is an important fact to know, this becomes a little tedious on, on forums and Facebook groups when people jump all over particular plants. Invasiveness is a very local characteristic for many plants. And I gather that the Japanese barberry is a real problem in places where it reseeds and has become a, a solid stand of vegetation in some areas, crowding out native shrubs in woodsy areas, and also is associated with ticks and Lyme disease, as I'm sure someone will jump in and tell you right away. Um, that's not the case in California. Uh, we apparently aren't rainy enough for the seedlings to ever germinate here. So I've literally never seen a seedling barberry come up here. So it's a plant that we can use and it's, it's attractive enough. Most people don't even know they flower. They're grown for the red, burgundy red foliage and the fact that they are formidably thorny, so they make great barrier plants. Uh, if you happen to have a place where you don't want someone to walk through, you want a hedge that is never going to be penetrated, barberry is a great choice for that. But the flowers are cool and they do draw bees and even butterflies, and so it's just a nice bonus of a plant that I agree, those of you east of the Mississippi should probably not be planting. But Japanese barberry is not the only one. Is it, isn't that a larger group? Yeah, there's a lot of different barberries. And uh, in fact, for the record, Mahonias have been moved back into the genus Berberus. I mean, so it's a big group of plants. And there's lots of them that are perfectly fine for planting here and undoubtedly many species that are fine for planting elsewhere. So just, you know, just inquire and become informed about them. Mahonia is what we call uh, Oregon grape. Um, there's lots of different species of Mahonia. We all know it as Mahonia aquifolium and other species. And I gather taxonomists, found they were closely enough related to Berberus that they're now back in that genus. So let's not tar the whole family with the same brush, but uh, just be cautious about planting barberries in places where it rains through the summer. Well, another flower that I see here that I think of, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure if it's where it goes. It's viola. Yeah, it, well, it, it, goes, it, it goes. But isn't that, I mean... You say you're not sure where it goes. It goes wherever you let it. Um, depends on which one you have. <laughs> I meant time-wise, Don. Yes, well, well um, Viola cornuta and Whitrockiana and others are the pansies and violas of the nursery trade. And those are planted here in the Sacramento Valley and in coastal areas of California in the cool season. We plant them in the fall and the winter time. If you buy them in late April, you're only gonna get a couple more weeks of bloom out of them because they're one of those plants that's very sensitive to 90 degree temperatures. And so they'll be done, that'll be that. Of the, of the group, the violas, the pansies, the Johnny Jump Ups, which are the small flowered version, that last one will go longer. Johnny Jump Ups can be very satisfactory all the way into June or July, and also tend to reseed themselves and, interestingly, come true, as we say, from seeds. So what you planted, seedlings will come up and look like the parent, unlike many of the hybrids 
the, of the other categories. But viola also encompasses the somewhat annoying viola odorata that's invaded lawns all over the older parts of Davis. That's the sweet smelling viola or violet, sweet violet. Reseeds like crazy, runs all over the place, impossible to get rid of. Um, unfortunately, on top of that, it's also disfigured by this insect that causes leaves to get all curled up. So it's become one of those nuisance plants. And also there's Viola heteracea, which now has a new name, but which I believe you have spreading freely in the shadier parts of your garden. Uh, the that's Australian the, violet. Australian violet, yeah. And Australian violet is a great choice for a, a low maintenance, adequately watered shade garden. It'll spread and fill under other shrubs and it has a really pretty bicolor kind of light purple, dark purple bloom. Blooms all the time. I mean, it's pretty much in bloom spring, summer, fall. And while it spreads, I don't consider it a nuisance. It's not one of those things that's going to become annoying. Uh, but it, it will cover, you know, a flat of that will cover 50 to 100 square feet without much difficulty. And it'll fill in areas where you let it. So you have violas that are a nuisance, violas that are intentionally planted as garden annuals. And you have this one that's ex as, a, as a very well-mannered ground cover. And that one is extremely sturdy. I mean, yeah. I, I planted it and the next year we had that really hard freeze back oh, in the 90s. Yeah, Viola's gone. Well, it was immediately back. It came up from the crowns or roots or something because yeah. it was instantly back. Now, Viola's don't really care about cold all that much. I mean, we had the major freeze here in 1990. Uh, it got down to uh, 16 degrees at our farms, 18, 19 degrees in town. And uh, we walked outside and, you know, the, many of the plants were obviously badly damaged. Viola's were fine. Uh, they came right back from that. So they're quite tolerant of cold. As a genus, uh, viola is actually quite broad. There are, there are native and wild violas all over the world, or at least all over the Northern Hemisphere that I'm aware of. So those of you listening in Australia, or Australia, <laughs> those of you listening in Alaska, for example, probably have a viola that blooms in whatever your equivalent of spring is there out in the woods. I mean, it's a huge genus. There's lots and lots of members. And there are some that have become great garden plants and others that are wild plants. Very easy to grow. But in okay. general, most of them that we plant intentionally are winter and spring bloomers here in the valley. So on this calendar, you also have some um, flowering trees, which I'm not going to mention, and the syringia, which is the lilacs. Syringia, syringia, yes. My syringa, or common French hybrid lilacs, are just finishing their bloom now. And they bloom at a particular time based on temperature everywhere they're grown. Uh, they're grown very widely, of course, in much colder climates. So you all listening in Canada or Mid-Atlantic or New England can kind of peg where you are with respect to us by when your lilacs bloom. Mine began blooming four weeks ago, very first of them. I took my first pictures. I always go out and take a picture on the very first day of lilac bloom. And that was back in the first week of April. Uh, actually late March, last week of March. It was ahead of schedule this year. It does change a little bit from year to year, fluctuates a little bit. It's a marker for when we've reached a particular temperature range. And then the very last bloom is still on the last of my 15 lilac bushes right now. So that's about a four-week bloom, five-week bloom, I would say. And they each plant comes into its full bloom for about seven to 10 days. Yes, it always surprises people new to the Sacramento Valley to learn that lilacs grow well here. Uh, all the regular French hybrid lilacs do fine. We get enough winter chilling for them. That's usually the thing they think we won't get. And then if you're really concerned about that or you're listening in Southern California or the Bay Area, 
They're what are called the Descanso hybrid lilacs, which were introduced by Descanso Gardens down in Southern California for blooming reliably even in mild winter areas. And those are very cool. They're generally speaking not as super fragrant as the French hybrids, but they're fragrant. It's pleasant. They've got a nice sweet scent to them. And um, they bloom reliably even in at least interior Southern California. I don't know if I'd test them right on the coast, but you, you could find out locally. So we have lilacs that bloom as early as late March and as late as early May. And then we get away from the French hybrids, the big leaf types, to some of the ones like Persian lilacs and some of the others that bloom on into the month of May. Very easy to grow. Lilacs are very drought tolerant. And just for the record, they're one of the few plants that prefers slightly alkaline conditions. So they actually don't mind uh, water like we have in Davis. Uh, people come in and ask if it's time to lime their lilacs. I know they just moved here from the East Coast. I gather they do that back there. Aqualegia, Don. Columbine. All right. Now, forever. <laughs> uh, I, I have a big stand of Columbine in my driveway border right now. I took two $4 six-packs and planted them out in a bed about eight feet long last September, October. That's all I did. And they're in full bloom right now. So what is that? Six months later. These are the kinds of plants that have fallen out of favor because people just don't know them. But you really can't go wrong with a plant that you just take a few little seedlings and stick them in the ground in the fall, water them in until the rains come, and they give you this amount of bloom. It's actually phenomenal. The hummingbirds are all over them. They absolutely love them. If you're a native plant enthusiast, we have the Western Columbine. It does great here. It's a bigger, more robust plant, so make room for it. But in general, they're quite easy to grow. And I strongly suggest that even if you're a fastidious person who likes to deadhead, don't do it with your columbine because they'll reseed and the color range will vary, but they, their seed will take forever to come up. You'll, you'll never believe it's happening. Next thing you know, here and there in your garden border, this really lovely ferny foliage, and they're scattering themselves into more shade and more sun and doing equally well in both situations. Incredibly easy to grow. Pelargonium. That's, yeah. that's the problem one, isn't it? Well, it's a problem, yes. I mean, that's your, your garden geranium is pelargonium. Uh, it refers to three different plants that are sold in nurseries. Ivy geranium, which is pelargonium peltatum. Common garden geranium, which is pelargonium uh, hortorum. And Martha Washington geranium, which is pelargonium domesticum, which is actually sometimes just called pelargonium. And uh, they're all great. They all grow easily. They all get, well, two of the three get worms really badly. So if you are not someone who likes to spray uh, or, and gets tired of hand-picking caterpillars off of blossoms, of the three, the Martha Washington and the common garden geranium will get the caterpillars starting sometime in May all the way through the summer here in the valley. This just goes, there's like 12 generations of this particular moth that lays these eggs. The, the geranium budworm, it's appropriately called because it eats the flower buds. So that's a little demoralizing. It doesn't like the ivy geraniums. I've never seen it on an ivy geranium. Uh, they need a little more shade, a little more cascading plant, a little less upright, but they don't get the caterpillar problem. So if you're looking for something with that color range, the color intensity of a geranium, and here we're not talking about the true geraniums, we're talking about the things we call geraniums, look for the ivy geraniums. If you don't mind spraying an organic spray like BT for the caterpillars every week, all through the summer, then go ahead and plant the other types. So you said they're not real geraniums. Geranium geraniums are called cranes bill. Is that yeah. right? Yes, that's a common name. And geraniums, this has never used to be an issue because there weren't really any garden geraniums until about 20 years ago. And then a whole bunch of 
species and varieties of true geranium came on the market, usually called Crane's Bell. There's Johnson's Blue, there's Roseanne, which is a lovely lilac purple color. There's pink ones and um, more kind of UK and Oregon kinds of plants than Sacramento Valley kinds of plants. They grow here, but if it gets really hot, the foliage can look a little toasted. Uh, they are easy. They're generally adaptable as long as they, in my opinion, should get a little bit of shade in the valley. But uh, they're real geraniums. They're the, the genus geranium. And uh, this is an unfortunate situation with common names. So. Are any of those things that you just spoke about, pelargoniums, geraniums, Martha Washington, are any of those native to California? Uh, we have a native, well, we have a geranium that's wild in our orchards and, and areas here, and I can't remember whether it's a native or an invasive species. It comes up periodically because it's poisonous. And um, so if you call a poison control center uh, because your kid has eaten a geranium, they'll need you to verify whether he's eaten a geranium or pelargonium. Uh, because pelargoniums are not toxic, and this one geranium and some others are. So uh, we have geraniaceae members here in California, certainly. And uh, the one that's pretty common, I think, is actually native. And you might want to be aware of it just in terms of toxicity to kids. But don't freak out too much about that. What it means is when you call Poison Control Center, you need to know the actual Latin binomial of the plant so they can give you an accurate answer about your question. This question came up, are there cover crops for summer? That'll be easy. Um, yes, not very many. Cover crops, of course, are things we plant to build the soil and to perhaps take the place of what would otherwise be weeds. So the best known ones like fava beans and clover and vetch and annual ryegrass are all planted in the fall and winter as winter cover crops. Gardeners who are trying to build the soil in the summer will often plant cow peas, which you might know as black-eyed peas, and uh, they're grown to eat, but also basically just as a cover crop, and they love the heat, and so they're planted in the summertime. And the other would be buckwheat, and again, we're not talking about, this is a common name problem, we're not talking about the buckwheat shrub, which is areogonum, we're talking about a plant called buckwheat that is used as a grain crop, but also makes a very quick cover crop if you happen to want to cover an area. You're not going to plant with a crop, you know, with a, with a food crop at that time. It'll come up quickly, it'll help choke out weeds. But of the two, the cowpeas are actually quite easy to grow, deep-rooted nitrogen fixers, just like their related legumes. And they do cover quite a territory. I mean, a single plant spreads out about three feet. So that's one way to go if you're in the summer and you're looking for something to cover bare soil. My experience is summer gardens tend to be full because most of the things we plant are rambunctious plants in the summer, tomatoes, melons, things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, whereas in the winter, you tend to have a smaller number of plants that take up less space. So cover crops are really more of a cool season thing. So if I wanted a cover crop for the summer, <coughs> why wouldn't I just plant some watermelons? I mean, they cover the ground, they shade the ground. Aren't yeah. they just cover crops? Yeah, I mean, well, anything is a cover crop if you're growing it primarily as a soil building mechanism. So you can take bush beans, for example, and uh, you know plant them to enjoy the beans and and have them provide the benefit that the winter cover legumes would have would have been providing. So in other words, you're taking something like the, the regular blue lake beans that you grow to eat, uh, but you're planting a bunch of them in a spot because you just want to enrich the soil with the nitrogen fixation and have the biomass, the leafy matter that you then turn in. So it's a matter of definition as to what, you know, what we're using it for. Yes, you can still eat those beans as well. Now, I'm not saying you should plant pole beans in that situation. That would become a maintenance headache, but bush beans can function the same way. Thank you.
Don, I have some homework for you. I heard that discussion that you had with that person where you said, that one would definitely be on my list of top 12 perennials. And they said, you have a list of top perennials? And you said, well, no. And they said, well, you should. I'd like to hear that. I well, I'd like to hear that too, Don. So next week, would you make up a list of 12 perennials and we'll talk about them? I have old lists at redwoodbarn.com. One of the very first things you uploaded to the brand new then website, redwoodbarn.com, when you and I built that way, way back when, was a chart of perennials. And I find it interesting to go back and look at those lists all these years later and say, yep, that one's still on there. Oh, there's some things missing that I would definitely put on there. And uh, so, yes, it changes over time. There are a handful that have been quite consistently on my informal list of top perennials over the years. And so, yes, I think that'll be a great topic for a future show. And actually, if you have questions, if you're listening out there and you have questions about perennials and whether it's a good one or something you think we should talk about more. Um, it's a very subjective list based on something that blooms a lot, you know, abundance of bloom over a long period, long season of bloom is preferred, though not necessarily. How easy they are to grow, something you can just plant and not worry about it. And just like proven performance over many years. And, you know, and a good example of one that gradually crept onto my list over time was Peruvian lily, Alstromeria which is a garden plant that's extremely adaptable. And now I have big areas on my property of Alstromeria varieties because I just stick them in, let them spread, let them grow. It's the end of April, beginning of May. They're beginning to bloom right now. I go, wow, that's a big area of that one variety. And so I really can say that's a good one for this area. So of the list, uh, that's definitely going to be on there. I don't think it was on there 30 years ago because they weren't common in the nursery trade back then. So if you've got questions about perennials of that sort or things you you know think we you might want us to talk about more you can email those questions and we certainly welcome it to davisgardenshow at gmail.com and that'll give us great topics for future shows and if you want to listen to the archives you can also go to our website which is davisgardenshow.com correct all right so real quickly um i do want to mention the most common questions that are coming our way right now have to do with holes in the leaves. And the reason I mention this is that a listener sent me a beautiful picture, excellent picture, which I will try to remember to upload to the davisgardenshow.com webpage of Katie did eggs. I always have to look it up when someone sends me this, these perfectly overlapping discs on a stem of a woody plant. In his case, this was about a week ago, what was really cool about him was that each perfect little disc had a hole in it the hole indicating that the baby Katie did had just emerged. So he sent me a picture of eggs that had just hatched. And those Katie dids are now scattering themselves in his garden. And I was out taking a picture the very next day on my roses, and there was one very baby little half-inch Katie did. They look like a, a Katie did is like a grasshopper. It's related, and it, like a grasshopper, the baby looks just like the adult. There's no metamorphosis. It's not a caterpillar to a, to a moth kind of thing. The baby looks just like the big one in miniature. And you'll find odd little holes here and there in the leaf of your strawberry, just one hole, or the petal of, of two petals of your rose, which is otherwise undisturbed. And so this is one of the things that's out there that's making holes in leaves of plants or flowers right now. The others are earwigs, snails, slugs. And then if the whole plant's disappearing, 
eh, rats or squirrels or possibly even birds. But I wanted to mention the katydids right now because this is a topic we should revisit soon since those of you listening in colder climates will be seeing these and I'm guessing about two to four weeks. And once you get them, the question will come up, how did I know that this damage was done by a katydid? How do I know that instead of a snail or a slug or an earwig? And probably most important, what do we do about those situations? Which in most cases is just be aware of it, marvel at the phenomenon. So I want to recommend to our listeners that Don has lots and lots and lots of articles, which he has written for the Davis Enterprise over the many years that he's been writing. And he has them posted on his commercial website. So this one that I've been reading as he's been talking is called the Davis Enterprise article, Earwigs and Others. Yes. So if you, if you go to his website, what's your website, Don? That'll be redwoodbarn.com. Redwoodbarn.com. So once again, we welcome your questions at davisgardenshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter at KDRT-LP 95.7 in Davis, California. I think to myself, what a wonderful listening to 95.7 FM KDRT Davis California